Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode contains the recounting of traumatic events. Listener discretion is advised. It was December 1982 when 21-year-old Shelley Barnett, described by Vanity Fair as a willowy beauty with strawberry blonde hair, married 22-year-old David Miscavige in Los Angeles. She would become the first lady of Scientology. Those who knew her described her as shy, often appearing lonely and isolated. At the same time, some witnesses say she was prone to losing her temper, much like her husband. In all the years they were together, members of Scientology who have gone on the record say they cannot remember any affection between the two. They did not hug or kiss. Theirs was very much a working relationship. They were both dedicated to the Church of Scientology above all else and were busy attracting high-profile celebrities to their church. Their project worked. They recruited Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, Elizabeth Moss, Danny Masterton and Nancy Cartwright, among others. By 2004, Claire Headley, an ex-Scientologist who worked closely with Shelley, said she had begun to crack. Shelley was cowed, she said. She was always stressed. She was never sleeping. She was run ragged. Because of that, she was often in a bad mood, and that's where some people would just say they hated her. But she was never an evil person. It was just a god-awful situation. And then, suddenly, Shelley Miscavige, the most high-profile woman in Scientology, vanished. It was as though she had never existed. I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with journalist Tony Ortega. Tony was formerly the editor-in-chief of The Village Voice in New York and has been investigating and writing stories about Scientology since 1995. 
I wanted to begin by asking how long has it been since anyone you know of has actually seen Shelley Miscavige? Well, it's interesting. A woman came to me a couple of years ago who lives up by the small mountain compound where we believe Shelley's being held. And she said that she had noticed a woman in town. There's a little tiny town up in the mountains above Los Angeles called Crestline. And this woman lives right outside of it. And she had gone to the hardware store one day and then a few months later to a grocery store there. And both times she had noticed this disheveled, older-looking woman who had two big burly guys sort of accompanying her and guiding her around the store. She was just drawn to this woman and kind of studied her for a little while, wondered what was the story was. And not long after that, ABC broadcast an interview with Leah Remini, and they actually showed a picture of Shelley on the television in that interview with Leah. And the woman realized that's who she had seen. So she contacted me and I quizzed her and quizzed her. I talked it over with some people that really know their stuff up there. And I'm taking this sighting seriously. This was in 2015 and 2016 that this sighting occurred in the little town of Crestline, California. And I think there's a good chance that this was Shelly and that she had been let out to go down to the town, which is a couple miles from the compound, accompanied by a couple of handlers, as they say in Scientology, uh, in order to pick up a few goods. Probably not anymore now that we've spotted her and publicized it. But I am taking that seriously. I think that may have been a sighting of Shelly Miscavige in town. And prior to 2005, how would you describe Shelley's role in Scientology? Who was she? What did she do? She actually had a title. It was COB assistant. COB is what the people call her husband, David Miscavige. It's short for chairman of the board. And David Miscavige is the absolute ruler of the Scientology movement. Every aspect of Scientology from the local mission to the large international gatherings, he is in complete control. And they call him COB, and they called Shelley COB assistant. She helped him run the Scientology empire. They were definitely the most powerful couple in that movement. And the people who run Scientology are part of a special elite core called the Sea Organization or Sea Org. The name comes from the fact that for several years, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, ran Scientology from a ship at sea. And to this day, the people who run Scientology wear naval uniforms and have naval ranks. And Dave is the top of that Sea Org. And people who have been in the Sea Org will tell you it is a tough organization. These people work around the clock, 365 days a year. They scream at each other. They are always running and, you know, working just incredible, uh, you know, stamina it takes to be in the Sea Org. No one is in the Sea Org who is not toughened and, you know, somebody who's prepared to take abuse, dish out abuse. And Shelly was one of those people. I mean, Shelly was a hard as nails Sea Org executive in her own right. That's why you'll hear from some former Scientologists today that they're not all that sympathetic about her situation because they will tell you, well, she was a mean Sea Org executive like the rest. And I hear different things from other people. But no question, she and Dave ran Scientology, and she was always with them. That's the other thing people tell me who were with them. I've talked to people that were with Shelley when she was a child. I've talked to people who were around 
David Shelley when they were married, who were on the base with them that they were running in the California desert. And no matter where Dave was around the world, opening a new facility in Spain or whatever, Shelley was always with him. And that's why it was so unusual in the summer of 2005 when Dave went to Los Angeles for a publishing project he was working on and left Shelley behind at the base. And that's when people started to notice, hey, something's going on, because they normally traveled everywhere together. What can you tell us about what happened in 2005? Was there an event or a moment that kind of changed things? There is a kind of precipitating event people point to who were there at the time. But I think this was something that was coming on gradually. To get a sense of the larger picture, Dave's greatest victory was getting tax-exempt status in the United States for the Church of Scientology in 1993. And then the rest of the 90s were really a kind of go-go period for Scientology. They had a lot of sway in Hollywood. They had cowed the press in a certain, you know, because of some lawsuits, the, the press was kind of afraid to go after them. And then in 1995, they had a disaster where one of their parishioners died in Florida, which resulted in the church itself being indicted facing criminal charges. It was a nightmare of publicity. There were several years of litigation, both in criminal court and civil court. Finally, by 2000, that was starting to let up. And I, my personal theory is Dave, at that point, started to feel invincible. And he started to feel paranoid. He was getting very paranoid about the people closest to him. So between 2000 and 2004, he was systematically removing people that posed any kind of a threat to him, who were close to him at all. He actually created a prison for them. We call it the hole today. And that was at the Int base, the gold base, the international management base out near Hammett, California. And increasingly, he was putting all these various executives in this prison. And I think, you know, who was the most powerful person next to him, who maybe in his mind provided the biggest threat, was his own wife. And eventually he turned on her. I think that's the background to keep in mind about what led up to 2005. Now, as for the precipitating event, I mentioned that Dave had gone to Los Angeles to work on a book project while Shelley stayed back at, at base near Hemet. And she took care of a couple of things while he was gone that had never gotten taken care of. Like there was a list of jobs, it's called an org board. And they would bring suggestions to Dave about which people would fill what slot, and he would never approve it, never approve it. And it was a big pain to all of them at the base. All the people there that have talked to me told me it was a real hassle. Shelly just one day filled the org board. She said, you get this job, you get that job, done, taken care of. The other thing she did while he was gone was they wanted to renovate the particular, you know, it base is a 500-acre compound with a lot of individual buildings. The particular buildings they were in, where they lived, their residence, they wanted to renovate. And it wasn't going to happen until they got all their stuff out. So Shelly had all of Dave's stuff crated up. He comes back from Los Angeles late August 2005. He sees that the org board has been filled in without his participation. He sees his belongings are sitting outside his building in crates. And I have multiple witnesses who were there that day who said he just blew his stack. He just went ballistic. And a week later, Shelley disappeared. Mm. You mentioned the hole. Can you tell us a little bit about what that 
is. Inside, does it look like a prison from what you understand? It's it's so banal. Let me tell you what it is. The Int Base has various buildings, various offices, and they were always kind of building it out and adding things. And so there were some temporary buildings. There were some double-wide trailers that were being used as offices. And one day, after Dave had become paranoid and decided that 20 or 30 of his top lieutenants were all out to get him or betray him, he marched them into that office and just took the key. So imagine, I don't know what your office is like. Do you work in an office? You have a lot of cool co-workers. It's great. What if the boss just came one day and just locked the door and you just couldn't leave? That's what the hole is. It's just an office where they have to sleep on the floor. Wow. They, you know, I've talked to multiple people that were in there. Mike Rinder is one of them. They were sleeping on the floor. They were brought a bucket of slop at noon to eat. The only time they were let out of that building was in the morning. They were marched out under a underpass under the main highway to another building where there was a shower. Took their shower right back. And then their activities in there, they were doing what was called seances in Scientology. It was basically what can you confess today that shows how disloyal you've been to Dave. And they would pressure each other. They would accuse each other. I mean, it's like classic, like 1930s Soviet show trial mm. kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And Mike Rinders described it in detail, Mark Headley, uh, some other people that were in there. So that's all it is. It's just an office where he locked the door and put, and, and he actually had a guy named John Brousseau put bars on the windows. They were mostly symbolic. But to let them know you're never leaving. And it was like that for the first five years. From 2004 is when he started it in January 2004. Shelly disappeared in September 2005 from that base. So the first thing people always ask me is, is she in the hole? I'm like, no, she. the hole is at the base where Shelly and Dave were living when Shelly was disappeared somewhere else. She can't be in the hole. We know who's in the hole. We've got multiple witnesses who's in the hole. So from 2004 to 2009, that's what it is. Bucket of slop, daily shower, sleep on the floor. After it was publicized in 2009 by the Tampa Bay Times in a blockbuster series of journalism, the things I've heard from people there is that the conditions were ameliorated. They were allowed to go sleep in an apartment at night, but they're still segregated. There's still a hole. What? How many years is it now? It's it's seventeen years later. There's still a hole. There's still a group of people at that base who are segregated and are considered part of that prison program. Now they get to sleep in an apartment at night. It's not as as harsh as it used to be, but this was Dave's way of clamping down on what he believed were betrayers, and he was just very paranoid. Mm. Do we know much about Shelley's? upbringing or what her life was like before she went missing? Was she always a Scientologist? Yeah, basically. I mean, this is just a classic Scientology thing is her parents were getting into it. So they'd sign their kids over to the, you know, to Hubbard and, you know, they actually joined the ship. I mean, Shelly was only 11 years old when she went to the Apollo, the ship where L. Ron Hubbard was running Scientology from the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, and then the Caribbean. And she was a messenger. There were these young girls whose job it was to carry L. Ron Hubbard's messages around the ship. And not only would they carry the message, they would have tried to deliver it the way he had said it. So just imagine in your mind, this 11-year-old 
you're swabbing the deck or whatever, and this 11-year-old runs up to you and barks some order, trying to sound as much like L. Ron Hubbard as she could. I mean, it's so bizarre and strange. And that was her upbringing. You know, she grew up worshiping L. Ron Hubbard. And everybody that I've talked to who knows her say that, you know, to her, L. Ron Hubbard is God. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what she thinks of her husband anymore, but at least we can be confident that she still considers L. Ron Hubbard the greatest human being who ever lived. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jesse Stevens. I'm speaking with Tony Ortega, a journalist who's been following the developments in Scientology since 1995. For anyone who doesn't know much about Scientology, what does it stand for as a religion or a cult or whatever you want to call it? What does it actually stand for and what's the significance of L. Ron Hubbard? Yeah, let me try to give you a quick version. L. Ron Hubbard was a well-known pulp writer in uh, 1930s America for uh, all kinds of different writing, adventure writing, romance writing even, but um, he's mostly known for his science fiction. Very big following in the pages of Astounding Magazine. And then in the war, he was a lieutenant in the Navy. And in 1950, he kind of surprised everybody by coming out with this completely different direction, the book Dianetics. And what's important to remember about Dianetics, the subtitle of that book is The Modern Science of Mental Health. At the beginning, L. Ron Hubbard was saying he had found a new science that helps explain how the human mind works. And just briefly, his breakthrough, he said, was that he realized that the brain is a perfect recording computer, but there's a a half of the mind called the reactive mind where all the negative things go, particularly when you're unconscious. So when you're knocked out and people start talking around you, you're absorbing those things into this reactive mind. They will then get re-stimulated later. So his theory was that things that are making your life difficult today are really things that had happened to you a long time ago that are getting re-stimulated. Now, this sounds a little bit like psychoanalysis. And in fact, most people will tell you that's what he was ripping off, was a talking cure where if you can remember these traumatic incidents that happened to you when you were a child, it will explain why you're having problems today. But he went so much farther than that. It was, you know, he not only said that these were literal things set around you when you're unconscious, but the most damaging happened to you while you were a fetus in the womb. And if you could just remember what it had been like to be a fetus in the womb, you would be able to pull out these key memories that are today holding you back. And in the book Dianetics, very few people read this thing, I find, because I think if they did, they'd be absolutely disgusted. His number one example of negative thoughts stored in your head are caused by rough sex between your mom and dad while you were in there. That's literally the example he uses. So mom and dad have rough sex, say some things, that goes imprinted into your you as either sperm, egg, or zygote. And then 40 years later, somebody says something, it triggers that, and this is why you have a pain in your elbow or all the time, or this is why you can't speak in front of a group. And 
I think in 1950, people were thrilled with the idea that there was this code, you know, in your head. And if you could just get back to what it was like to be. So in the movie, The Master, there's this wonderful scene. They tried to recreate this. I think they did a great job where they showed them trying to re-experience birth because they figured if they could do that, they would remember the bad things that had happened to them that mom did, that dad did, and then it would, you know, free them. And that was up to about 1953. It was very popular at first. Then it kind of bombed. He lost the name Dianetics in a bankruptcy. So in 1952, he started over. This time he called it Scientology. Now, the difference between Scientology and Dianetics was in Dianetics, we were just trying to remember back to the womb. By the time that two years later came around and he was doing Scientology, now the idea is to remember what happened to you in past lives. Mm. And Hubbard started saying that you are actually billions of years old. You've lived countless times. And it's the negative things that happened to you four million years ago on another planet somewhere that's causing all of your problems today. And so today, that's what Scientologists do. They pay up to $800 an hour to do counseling with the e-meter, this electronic meter, in order to help them locate those negative experiences from a thousand years ago, a million years ago, trillions of years ago. And I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. It's all spelled out in their books. This is what they do. Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, they spend years and years trying to remember where they were millions of years ago on other planets so they can unlock the key of what's keeping them from bringing back powers they used to have. In Hubbard's cosmology, we were all gods. And we have fallen because we have been tricked by evil psychiatrists trillions of years ago. And if we can just get those memories back and clear them, we can then become what's called an operating Thetan and we will have godlike powers again. I, I, this is, and the thing is, you know, I know people, well, there's some secret stuff that's never been, no, this is in his lectures that he gave in the fifties and sixties. It's all right there. You can listen to yourself, but that's the goal is to bring back your godlike powers by remembering what happened to you billions and trillions of years ago. And there have been a number of whistleblowers who have come out and really shared what it's like on the inside. Have any of those shared any light on where Shelley Miscavige might be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I found out. I heard some things about where she might be, but it was my interview with John Brousseau in 2012, or I think it was 2011, that I really first got an indication of where she was. John Brousseau was David Miscavige's brother-in-law for 16 years. John Brousseau was married to Shelley's sister. So he was very, very close to Dave and Shelley. He was also worked very closely with Tom Cruise. And John Brousseau came out of Scientology in 2000, I want to say 2005. I might be wrong about that. And I interviewed him in 2012, his first interview he gave. And I told him, I'd heard some things about Shelley. I wasn't sure where she might be. And he said, I know where she is. And I said, well, how do you know? And like I said, Dave and Shelley were living at Int Base or Gold Base there in Hemet. So was John Brousseau and a lot of the other top management are all living at that base. Shelley was taken away from there in late August, early September 2005. Where did she go? Well, what John Brousseau, and I've confirmed this with two other people that were there at the time, what they noticed, there was a pigeonhole system for the mail, right? Because there's Scientology facilities all over the place. 
And if mail came for somebody, it would get put into a pigeonhole to go. What John Brousseau and Ron Miscavige and a couple other people noticed was that Shelley's mail was being put into the pigeonhole for the Twin Peaks CST compound. And that's how we knew where they took her. Now, what's CST? This is, again, it just gets more and more fascinating. Scientology is this alphabet soup collection of entities. Church of Scientology International, Religious Technology Center, all kinds of little entities that make up the one big movement all under David Miscavige. The strangest one and the most secret is something called CST for the Church of Spiritual Technology. It was created in 1981 or 1982 when there was a big reorganization of the church. And CST has a bizarre mandate, and that is to preserve L. Ron Hubbard's words to survive civilization collapse. And the way they do that is they have locations in out-of-the-way places, four in California, one in New Mexico. They tried to do another one in Wyoming, but it failed. At some of these locations, they either dig a vault or take over a mine, some underground secure location, so they can store copies of L. Ron Hubbard's words, his lectures, his books, on media that they have designed to last a minimum of 12,000 years. So there are, like I said, there are several of these CST locations where that storage is going on. The headquarters of CST is a compound north of Los Angeles in the mountains, in the San Bernardino Mountains, in a little town called Twin Peaks, which is near Crestline, that little town I mentioned before, and also near Lake Arrowhead. And if, if you're from LA, that's what you've heard of. Oh, I know Lake Arrowhead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like an hour and a half, two hour drive from Los Angeles. Up in the mountains, there's this little compound where not only do they have a vault for storing things, but that's the headquarters of CST. That's where the work goes on. That's where they have these state-of-the-art laboratories where they're taking his words, putting them on media like they're literally etching his words on steel plates, putting them in titanium bankers boxes, and then storing them in these underground vaults so that if 50 years from now there's a nuclear war or some civilization collapse, the world can be recreated with the help of Scientology. I'm not kidding. This is what they're doing up there. And it's really a perfect place for Dave to stash Shelley because there's only 12 or 15 people up there. They're all lifers. They've all been up there for 20 or 30 years already. They never come and go. They're busy. They're working on making those archives and remaking them and getting them ready to be stored. Scientology TV actually did a program on it, and that really stunned me. Scientology TV actually showed the work being done. Now, they didn't tell you where it was, and they, you, know, you didn't see, really see the faces of anybody working. But they're proud of this, that they're doing this work to store Hubbard's words and, you know, I have multiple lines of evidence, independent lines of evidence that all put Shelley at that little compound doing that work. Has a missing person's case ever been filed for Shelley? Yeah. So um, Leah Remini, I broke the news that Leah Remini left Scientology. And that was a story in July 2013. And a month later, in August 2013, I broke the story that she had filed a missing person report on Shelley with the LAPD. The LAPD, now, here's something the press all got wrong right from the start. Leah filed the missing person report with the LAPD on a Monday. I didn't hear about it until Wednesday night, two days later. 
I broke the story Thursday morning. By that afternoon, other news organizations were calling the LAPD, and the LAPD was saying that the missing person report was unfounded. And so the reporters at these other news organizations all got the impression that somehow the LAPD had dismissed this thing in less than a day because my story had come out in the morning and by the afternoon they were saying it was unfounded. But it's not true. They had actually gotten the report a few days earlier. They had actually gone up and met with Shelley. And I found out about this because I talked to the lieutenant who oversaw this operation. His name was Lieutenant Andre Dawson. And he told me two of his detectives met with Shelley Miscavige and that she did not want to make a public statement. And I asked him, when they met with her, was it in the presence of other church officials? And he very quickly said, that's classified, which I thought was really weird, right? Because, mm. I mean, your local police force isn't even supposed to use that terminology, right? He wouldn't tell me anything else. Leah subsequently threatened to file a suit against the LAPD saying that she wanted the information from that, what they had actually done. And they told her no, they would not give her any more information. So I think the press unfairly criticized Leah because they got the impression that it was such a frivolous thing that it had come and gone in a day. It hadn't. She submitted her report. The LAPD looked into it. And Shelley said she's fine and she doesn't want to make a public statement. But, you know, again, I would question whether she was free to say something else. What do you think the quality of her life is right now, knowing what you do about Scientology and that she's basically been banished. She has no freedom whatsoever. What do you think her day-to-day life looks like? Well, um, you know, she's very used to a Sea Org schedule and Sea Org work. She's used to working hard. It's a beautiful setting. I mean, the, the you know, the one person who worked there who's left and talked to us always reminds me, it's like a beautiful place. And you're not around Dave, so he's not screaming at you. But, you know, no matter how pretty the place is, it's still a prison. She can't leave. She can't see her family. But I have to assume that on some level she may be resigned to her fate. You know, uh, she knows. She and Dave oversaw the operations to pull back other people who had run for it. She knows exactly what would happen if she tried to leave. So I think she may be resigned to her fate and... um some former Scientologists will tell you, look, she was Sea Org. She knows what the deal is. She, you know, why are you even worried about her? I said, that's Scientology thinking. I mean, this is one of the most powerful guys. He's in charge of billions of dollars. And he gets to banish his wife for 16 years and nothing's done about it? I mean, come on. I mean, this is just, I don't understand why law, another branch of her family came to me at one point a non-Scientology branch of her family came to me and said, we're concerned. We've read your reporting. What can we do? And I said, you need to go to the, forget the LAPD. It's not even in the LAPD's jurisdiction anyway. It's in San Bernardino County. I said, go to the San Bernardino County Sheriff and request a welfare check on Shelley. And they came back to me later and said they wouldn't do it. I said, why not? And they said, the sheriff said, there's not enough information that she's really there. I couldn't believe it. I sent a detailed letter to the sheriff's office explaining all the very good reasons why we believe she's there. And they just blew me off. I mean, I, I, I really, I don't think law enforcement normally would be so unconcerned about somebody who's not been seen in public for 16 years. I really think 
Scientology's just constant efforts to both curry favor and frighten law enforcement has paid off. Mm. And that's what I wanted to finish with is a little bit about David Miscavige because whistleblowers have described his temperament, what sort of man he is. He's extremely powerful. He's got, you know, control of a lot of money. What do we know about him and what he has done to people? Well, he's a little tyrant. You know, he uh, he's very capricious. He will just suddenly have a temper tantrum. He's used to people doing what he says. There's literally a unit that follows him around all day and records everything he says, and then at the end of the night puts together a report of all of his utterances. Okay, so this is, I mean, we're reaching Mao levels of dictatorship, right? And he's a hothead. So I've talked to so many people that were either subjected to his screaming sessions or he punched them. I mean, you know, Jefferson Hawkins and Mike Rinder and other people have come forward and said, look, Jefferson Hawkins is a very mild-mannered, great guy who was trying to write scripts for their TV commercials. He's the guy that came up with the famous 1980s erupting volcano TV ad that did so well for Scientology. And he was trying to review a script in a meeting. And for some reason, Miscavige just didn't like what he was saying. And he literally jumped up on the table, ran across the table, and flew at Jefferson and pinned him against the wall. Now, it's often remarked that David Miscavige is not the tallest man in the world. I decided rather than just guess at it, I actually found David Miscavige's former tailor. <laughs> this is a guy that made clothes for Dave and Shelley Miscavige for years and years. I thought, if anybody knows, it's this guy. And I said, how tall is he really? And he told me, not taller than 5'1". Mm. So you can imagine this guy's 5'1", jumping up on a table and just leaping at much taller people. And they've been asked, why didn't you hit back? And I think maybe it was Mike Rinder who said that, imagine if you were in the Navy and an admiral even if he was a foot shorter than you, came over and started slugging you, what would you do? Well, you know, I mean, it's a really tough position to be in. <laughs> you slug the admiral, you go to prison for the rest of your life. Exactly. And the power dynamics are very set in stone. This is someone who, you know, is notorious. I think a lot of people know him as Tom Cruise's best friend as well, like someone right. who's been really close to him for a lot of years and you just wonder how someone can be so above the law. And, you know, I'm glad you brought him up because I made a little video. I actually found some video of Madrid, Spain, and it's important because it was September 2004. It's the only time Tom Cruise has actually gone to the opening of one of these new ideal orgs. And he gave a speech in Spanish. Tom Cruise did. And at the end, on the video, you see Tom Cruise jump down to the front row with Dave Miscavige and Tommy Davis, and standing next to Dave is Shelley Miscavige. And for a split second, you see Tom Cruise, David Miscavige, and Shelley Miscavige on the video in Madrid 2004. That is the last footage I have found mm. of Shelley Miscavige, and it had Tom Cruise in it. Why isn't Tom Cruise being asked what has your best friend done with his wife? Because she actually set him up with uh, Nazanin Boniotti, mm. the uh, the girlfriend he had before Katie Holmes. 
Tom knows a lot about Shelly Miscavige, but, you know, he's protecting his friend. Tony Ortega is a journalist who was formerly the editor-in-chief of The Village Voice in New York. He's written about Scientology since 1995, and his book about Scientology's most infamous campaign of terror to destroy author Paulette Cooper came out in May 2015. He continues to monitor breaking developments in Scientology news on his website, The Underground Bunker, which you can find a link to in our show notes. True Crime Conversations is a podcast hosted by me, Jesse Stevens, and produced by Gia Moylan. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review in your Apple Podcast app. Or if you have a case you think we should cover next, you can contact us via email at truecrime at mamamia.com.au. I'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, if you'd like to hear more from me, you can find me on Mamma Mia Out Loud three times a week, as well as Cancelled, a comedy podcast about the stories of celebrity cancellations. 